Welcome everyone to The Burning Archive. This is another special episode on the crisis in Europe and increasingly the world brought on by the entry of or the military intervention of Russia into Ukraine. Uh, it's Sunday the 27th of March uh, 2022 and I am Jeff Rich. I am a poet, podcaster, writer, historian, and very, very, very minor government official. And this is, in fact, the seventh special episode on the Ukraine crisis that uh, I have done. Uh, and just to foreshadow, it will probably be my last, at least on this burning archive platform. What I'm planning to do is continue the discussion of this on a special uh, locals channel, which I will give you more information about. The context for today, well, it, it's interesting. Literally, in the last few hours, the ageing sort of emperor of the American Republic the leader of the world in which uh, we are sheltering here in the outer reaches of the global American empire in southern Australia has made the remarks that uh, America aspires for regime change and that Vladimir Putin must be removed from power. It apparently was a impromptu remark which was then subsequently covered over or withdrawn he really meant vladimir putin should not be able to be in power in ukraine apparently but there we go we are in such a situation that the president of the united states should both say and unsay something as provocative as that really quite dangerous times and uh, only one or two days ago, same President of the United States, Joe Biden, commented that food shortages will be real. The uh, range of actions taken in response to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, the various economic sanctions, the cutting off of the supply of wheat and fertiliser from Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, uh, has has meant that there will be food shortages across the world. Although Joe Biden's focus was really food shortages in Europe and America, in reality there are going to be food shortages across the world and a potentially uh, terrible, terrible situation, which perhaps is also why the global south, if you like, most of the world, apart from America, Europe and Australia has not been so unified behind the United States position to prosecute its campaign against Russia. And indeed, also a, a, a British general or former general, uh, senior general, um, has uh, said to the British public that they need to be prepared for a long period of stoic suffering through a decline in living standards as the West must, you know, uh, prepare for a long and difficult confrontation with Russia. Why exactly and that should be? He didn't really say, but... He's, uh, there some, seems to be a concerted effort by uh, the military security elites of 
America and the Anglo-American powers to prepare the population for a fight that they did not choose. Perhaps those remarks might give you a sense why I feel uh, I might be taking my commentary on the Ukraine situation to the Locals channel. So today I'm just going to go through quick uh, major events against the four vectors that I've been discussing on these uh, episodes. Uh, we're clearly in a, uh, a hard-to-predict pivot point, I guess, in this conflict, where I guess overall I would say it seems increasingly that Russia will successfully achieve its objectives in Ukraine. Uh, despite all the media stories about heroic Ukrainian resistance and so on, Russia being just about out of ammunition, uh, it does seem to be increasingly in control of the military situation and resilient in economic, diplomatic, uh, and maybe less so culturally, but in a sense also culturally. And as this, dare we say it, brave heroic resistance from the Russian uh, people uh, manifests itself the I guess the response from the advocates of war in America and Britain and even Australia has become perhaps increasingly uh, overheated emotional and potentially dangerous Indeed. Uh, so one really hopes there will not be some uh, terrible folly committed uh, on any side in all of this, nor as as the ship goes down in Ukraine, whether some of the uh, desperate, desperate, defeated forces uh, bring on some... Uh, you know, death by glory sort of horrible, horrible, uh, tragic event. We shall see. But it's 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 a very sensitive and difficult situation. And um, we will see how things emerge. And similarly, there is an increasing climate of uh, suppression of speech. Uh, so so we will we will just work our way through that. Okay, so I'm just going to go through the four uh, vectors and then uh, give you some sort of indication of how I plan to continue this conversation uh, on my new uh, channel. So the military situation first. So it appears that Mariupol, the key city in the south, where there have been, uh, you know, um, like allegedly 14,000 Azov Brigade-type forces uh uh, bunkered down in the city uh, has almost been uh, taken over by Russian forces uh, and now there are very, very large streams of refugees from Mariupol uh, fleeing the city and reporting on what conditions really were like there and it seems like most of those Ukrainian forces are now concentrated in a old steelworks in the sort of port of the city and will probably be the the city will be under complete control of Russia in the next couple of days and that will be a very crucial crucial thing because it also frees those forces for a deployment uh, in the other other parts of Ukraine 
And similarly, uh, again, the 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 uh, there's growing, I think, recognition now that Russia has not been pursuing, if you like, the traditional American approach to war, which is to bomb the smithereens out of all the cities, uh, level everything in its way, and then march in with zero resistance. Rather, it has been pursuing a strategy, uh, as some people say, of destroying armies, not cities, largely, uh, I guess, parking its armies around the key cities of Kiev, Kharkiv, uh, Odessa and others, and and then uh, not actually bombing those cities except for the military targets within them, but pinning those armies down so that the main army of Ukraine, which is in the Donbass or eastern Ukraine area, can be encircled uh, and gradually defeated or uh, induced to surrender. And that force is variously estimated as 40,000, 60,000 people, uh, uh, soldiers, I guess. And they are in heavily fortified positions around the Donbass, but they are now pretty much entirely uh, encircled. And it seems that defeat is very close and in fact there's been a a significant briefing by a Russian uh, general on the military situation in Ukraine that really outlines this and indicates that like 90% of Ukrainian military infrastructure has been destroyed like the fuel and all this sort of stuff and uh, that these armies are in a difficult position. People are starting to realise this, and so there's been an article by Neil Ferguson, that, uh, who's the sort of fairly eminent historian who's close to the sort of American diplomatic security establishment, but with some distance, who says that really the main fight isn't around the cities, it's actually in the Donbass and indeed there's been various uh, commentaries that have said that again Russia is destroying armies not cities Uh, it's largely avoided the cities with one or two exceptions there's a sudden pivot I guess to realize that the war isn't really in Kiev it's actually in eastern and southern Ukraine and that is where most of the Ukrainian army is, and that army is now largely isolated and without supplies. So, but as people realise this, I guess there there is a significant effort to try to prepare the Western public for this sudden surprise, because we've been told that there's been this, you know, amazing resistance from Ukraine and all the rest of it. Uh, so how are we going to suddenly explain the mass surrender of of thousands and thousands of Ukrainian forces in the Donbass? Uh, and look, there are better informed military commentators than me. You can certainly check uh, those people out um, if you wish. Um, and uh, I mean, there's uh, uh, even from some of the sort of general American uh, sources, someone like Jack Posobiec, who's a former naval intelligence officer, 
is very pro-American, but he tells it pretty straight about what is actually happening in uh, the Ukraine situation. Uh, I guess troublingly, there are also reports that the Russian Minister of Defence and Chief of the General Forces are not taking calls from their uh, American counterparts, whether those are true or not, I don't know. But one seriously hopes that uh, any risks of of massive escalation of this war are mitigated for the sake of us all. Anyhow, so military situation appears to be coming towards a conclusion uh, and a few decisive defeats, which will have defeats of the Ukrainian and, let's say, Western forces that will have significant consequences for the diplomatic, economic, cultural sort of uh, storylines as well. But we shall see. It is a war and it is battle and that is a very unpredictable set of things and uh, we'll see how things emerge. I have heard predictions that the war will largely be over and uh, by sort of mid-April. And what exactly the Russian approach to its its occupation is, uh, no one really sort of knows at this point, or whether there is to be an occupation. But uh, we will see, I guess, how things emerge. And I guess that will probably depend a lot upon maybe some of the internal politics within Ukraine, because if, if the Azov battalions are largely destroyed in the south and the east, and if if the armies there are sort of disintegrate, you get a, a growing, growing sense of, uh, I guess, sort of regime collapse within within uh, Ukraine, and um, presumably there will be people manoeuvring for uh, control of events. So we'll see how things go. On the economy front, I guess the theme here is well, there's probably two broad themes. One, there's clearly been a bit of a Russian fight back over recent times. Sanctions from hell were applied and the various judo moves were executed by Russia to mitigate the damage, including sort of internal Russian economic efforts to support their various industries, to support import substitution and to sort of support uh, or prevent a, a collapse of payment systems and the sort of financial system. The ruble appears to have restored some of its value uh, and also there's been significant back and forward around uh, the issues around energy supplies uh, and in particular over the last week or so uh, in the lead up to a big sort of NATO-EU summit the Russian government indicated that if the European powers wanted to buy gas from Russia, it would need to pay in rubles, which uh, would effectively sort of back up its currency. And so, yes, so there definitely seems to be a bit of a Russian fight back, and there has been growing attention to the spillover effects of these sanctions on an already uh, weakened global uh, economic economy and supply chain weakened by the two years of the pandemic and supply chain disruptions and uh, all, and and you know the massive indebtedness and the the large amounts of government spending 
that have been required to support people through the pandemic and the impact on on basic supply chain things like food so food and fuel uh, have uh, both been prominently discussed over the last little while and there's been a growing sense of uh, i guess self self-harm <laughs> i guess from the the conduct of this economic war the populations of the west got all very you know excited on social media about i stand with ukraine and then perhaps not quite realizing that i stand with ukraine might also mean paying 50 or 100 percent more for petrol and even more for natural gas if they're in europe and also having problems getting wheat and flour and bread and all sorts of other agricultural products Uh, and this will feed into inflation and other things still early days um, and i guess it's uh, some people say it's the law of unintended consequences and not only not only uh, caused by the russian situation but you know significant weakening of that food shortages i mean there have been food shortages experienced in the global south if you like uh for over the past two years of the pandemic the many of the critics of lockdowns and all that sort of stuff have said that the part of the immoral nature of the lockdowns has been that it has had a devastating impact on global poor by uh, reducing economic opportunities and that i mean deaths by starvation have been greater than deaths by by covid things like that but without getting deeply into that argument this cutting off food supplies from russia ukraine belarus and also fertilizer as well as general impacts on fuel costs and inflation and all that kind of stuff has led even the president of the United States to say, yes, there will be food shortages. And this sort of late rhetoric to say, well, this is a price that's worth paying for freedom. We shall see. Um, uh, And um, I'd just point out there was a really excellent discussion of some of these issues on the Hoover Institution's Goodfellows podcast. Particularly, I'd point out the comments from John Cochran who's you know who uh, i think is an advocate for active war against russia and regime change and all the rest of it but you can also sense or has been but you can also get a sense from him that well maybe we've just bitten off a little bit more than we can chew here and is pursuing regime change against russia a bit of a low probability event to play with to gamble so so much of the world economy on and similarly there has also been there was also an excellent discussion with a couple of economists around this issue on uh, tom switzer's podcast between the lines uh, which is like an abc australian broadcasting corporation podcast but tom switzer is quite good and he he has a good discussion of some of these issues as well Uh, and also what is becoming increasingly clear and it's discussed a little bit in both uh, John Cochran and by John Cochran and also by Tom Switzer and his guests is the sense that 
we're having sort of currency wars. The threat of the US dollar losing its prominence. Um, some of Russia's trade with India and with uh, China uh, going in and with Saudi Arabia and all this sort of stuff going into rubles or yuan or, or other currencies and half the world economy or more switching on to a different sort of uh, system and if that does happen and you know sometimes these things can happen slowly sometimes they can happen suddenly uh, then that will have dramatic consequences for if nothing else America's financial situation and if it can't pay the bills then it can't maintain 800 bases all around the world and uh, aim to control the geopolitics of every region of the world. And that takes us on to diplomacy. And it has been a big week. So just over a week ago, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Joe Biden had their call. There are some excellent uh, podcasts out there and, and news stories around this, but essentially Joe Biden came in uh, prepared to the sort of usual lines, I guess, from America, uh, calling on China to uh, criticise Russia's approach to to join the join the West. And Xi Jinping basically uh, said no, and also admonished Joe Biden for saying one thing to him and then doing another thing in uh, the policy. So uh, effectively, he kind of said, uh, I can't trust you. And one of the things I can't trust you on is American policy towards Taiwan, or if you like, the security structure of the Western Pacific, just as Russia cannot trust you with the security structure for Europe. So that was quite a decisive thing and I think it's probably a harbinger for a growing weakness in America's diplomatic position. There have also been major commentaries uh, or speeches, talks uh, or uh, opinion pieces by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, that effectively says that uh, Russia has, with some regret after many years of trying otherwise, decided it can no longer rely at all on uh, its Western partners, as they describe them, and now must pursue a largely self-reliant approach, which is also done with its true allies, such as Russia, uh, such as China and India and, and others around the world, if you like, the Eurasian bloc against the Atlantic bloc. And there has also been a significant statement from uh, Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, I mentioned this partly because, I mean, these things are generally not widely covered in the Western media, so uh, you can't really conduct diplomacy without understanding what all sides are thinking. But the, the, there was an extraordinary, uh, I guess, opinion piece from Dmitry Medvedev about on American strategists, uh, where he basically says America has not had good strategists since World War II, that they largely didn't need them because their their economic and sort of uh, military position was so 
so dominant uh, that they really just didn't have to think all that hard about things, but that they've, uh, as a result, sort of pursued rather, well, extremely anti-Russian, but also destructive for the world sort of uh, ideas. So let me just read from this as a bit of an insight into how Russians view, view this conflict uh, which is not just a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, it is very much a conflict between America and its NATO and uh, Australian and other partners and uh, Russia and its partners. And Dmitry Medvedev, who I guess is for, uh, both a former Prime Minister and former President of Russia in, over the last 25 years, and is also currently, I think, the deputy chair of the Security Council of Russia, so kind of like the cabinet, so to speak, of uh, the Russian government, and has for a long time been seen as more pro-Western than Putin, more of a liberaliser kind of thing, uh, although Putin for a long time was also seen as a liberaliser, and perhaps because the worm turned, that is why he's so despised by uh, America. But... Um, uh, so in this Medvedev says for the past th and and this is from a machine translation of uh, Dmitry Medvedev's text so apologies some of it sounds a bit weird but he says for the past 30 years Russia has been the target of the same mediocre and primitive game there is only one explanation she is an enemy what other legal successes of the USSR are there, even if there are no more fundamental ideological contradictions? This means that Russia must be humiliated, limited, shaken, divided and destroyed. How will this resonate in the near future in Europe and in the world as a whole? Never mind, nobody ever even thought about it. If there is a tap, and, and he's there sort of referring to like, you know, the weakness of American strategic thinking. If there is a tactical objective to destroy Russia, why have a long-term strategy at all? Now let's imagine that America succeeded in this round of confrontation. The narrow-minded strategists from the White House have caused a systemic political and economic crisis in Russia. As Joe Biden said last night, they want you know, Putin cannot remain in power. They weakened and led to a split, uh, a huge, very complex country. And here is the result. The largest nuclear power with an unstable political regime, weak leadership, a collapsed economy, and the maximum number of nuclear warheads aimed at targets in the US and Europe. Or in general, five or six new countries in the place of Russia as they dreamed overseas in the 90s. And indeed, that's well documented. It's part of the whole a big new Brzezinski grand chessboard sort of plan where each country has its own strategic weapon. Doesn't it remind you of anything? An unmanaged walking field where freaks, fanatics and radicals are in power. A plot from a dystopia or a crazy futurological forecast. Pulp Fiction. No, this is a real prospect of such a strategy. And then the next goal is the total weakening of China. 
and then there are only a couple of steps left before the most severe global crisis, the energy and food collapse, the failure of all collective security systems, and soon the big nuclear bang, which opens the way to a new universal singularity to the underworld. How do you like this prospect, gentlemen? Great plan. Bravo, strategists from the State Department and the Capitol. Bravo, K Street analysts. Bravo, senior members of the Senate. Bravo, Mr. President. You have already lived your life. You cannot be afraid because at the age of 80, nothing is especially scary. Of course, Russia will never allow such a development of events. This is clear to everyone today. Moreover, unlike the American establishment, which wants the end of our motherland, Russia wants to see the United States as a strong and intelligent country and not the last refuge of those who gradually fall into senile insanity. A responsible state that performs all the functions of a great power, a state that is trying to solve its many internal problems and does not undermine the development of other countries. All this is possible. Okay, so that is the view from Dmitry Medvedev uh, from Russia. And it's notable, I guess, the tone, I guess, the tone of all that, the uh, challenge, the challenge of, the challenge to the the grand strategies um, pursued by the uh, American geopolitical sort of think tank community. And look, some of that may be true, some of it may not be true, but one has to hear, yeah, one has to hear what that, what that really means and realise the consequences of this and just uh, really ask whether the world is a plaything for American geopolitical strategy. It is not. And cheap rhetoric about, you know, democracy and freedom is simply not enough to create that kind of dystopian scenario. And Russia knows what that dystopian scenario is because that is what happened to Russia and the Soviet Union in the 1990s and that they have slowly, slowly rebuilt from. So they will not let that happen again. So anyhow, there we go. So look, three other significant events. One is the uh, BRICS foreign ministers, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Uh, the sort of major developing, uh, I guess, nations, met in Moscow and significantly all those nations have are not united in standing for Ukraine uh, or want to see, you know, a resolution of the conflict, but they are all also have a strong interest in withstanding the American uh, economic war against Russia. And there's been strong support from that, including strong statements from South Africa, uh, critical of America. And similarly, the NATO and EU and G7 had a sort of triple summit in America. Uh, the main news from that was no real economic sanctions and a significant effort from presumably Germany, France and Italy to sort of cool the heels of the 
former East European states like Poland and America to pursue the more active war against Russia approach. Uh, and so there have been no real new economic sanctions announced and ambiguity about any any sort of further military action from NATO. And it was at the end of that triple summit that Joe Biden made his comments about food shortages. But it will all be fine, folks. It will all be fine. And then finally, uh, just I think yesterday, Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, met with the Indian foreign minister as part of a, a normalisation of relations between China and India in particular over the uh, conflict over, I think it's called the Lak area. So an area up near sort of Kashmir where there was actual armed conflict between India and China and they also discussed the Ukraine situation. And I believe there is uh, coming up a, a, a BRICS leaders uh, forum later in the year that that meeting is partly a prequel to so that there is a, a full meeting with uh, Modi and Putin and Xi Jinping. Again, that will be quite a interesting event in the context of this emerging multipolar world. It's perhaps more and more that group of nations that we might need to watch closely more than AUKUS or, or NATO. Finally, on culture wars, I'm just going to be very brief here on culture wars. Just really three quick points. One, uh, I just saw on uh, newsfeed just earlier that uh, there's a huge poster or uh, projected images image in Moscow which of course has one of the most wonderful, you know, musical, theatre, cultural scenes anywhere in the world, which says that, uh, you know, Western countries want to cancel Shostakovich, the great Russian composer, and indeed many, <laughs> many uh, people have been cancelling Tchaikovsky concerts, you know, all sorts of... Russian performers just because they are Russian performers. So the big projection saying the West wants to cancel Shostakovich. We will not be cancelling Vivaldi because culture cannot be cancelled. I guess Russia is fighting back, let's say, in the cultural realm as well. And then finally, uh, just to note that I think one of the elements of the culture war, if you like, is also a quite reasonable debate over the interpretation of history and the history of the Ukraine area and its role in history, the history of relationships between Russia and Ukraine. And the, I watched uh, over the last week an uh, excellent talk by the historian Dominique Levin, uh, much which I didn't agree with, but has led me to think that one of the things I might do in subsequent editions of this uh, discussion is look a little bit more carefully at the various historical interpretations of the history of the Ukraine crisis. I mean, I articulated the idea that it's like the last phase of a 100 years Cold War, uh, and also that it's the beginning of the wars of the Anglo-American succession. Uh, perhaps not the beginning, but one of the major early conflicts of the wars of the Anglo-American succession. Arguably, I think those those conflicts perhaps began in 2008. Now, I've sort of picked up 
three storylines, if you like, which uh, I'm going to condense fairly metaphorically around the, which I'm going to condense into quick phrases here, and which seem to sort of summarise the arguments of various historians around this situation. And one of the things I've noticed is the historians are really sort of, they're not really, they're very much taking a side one way or the other. And, I mean, I guess that's understandable. Wars do force moral choices and all that sort of thing and and stir moral passions. Um, So that's fine. But And what I might do is explore some of these a little bit more in subsequent episodes. And But the three sort of stories are kind of the Russian world story. So this is, if you like, the story articulated by Vladimir Putin in a large essay he wrote, uh, I think, mid-last year, where he's sort of saying the Ukraine and Russia are, are intermingled historically and historically and culturally with Ukraine being, you know, a lesser part of a greater Russian world. And part of that is therefore Ukraine's choice to ally with the West uh, against that Russian world is unsustainable. And, you know, there's weaknesses and everything around that story, but that's basically the narrative. Then another narrative, and this is really the narrative that Dominic Levin put in uh, his talk to Trinity at Japan, perhaps put a link to in the show notes, is, if you like, the imperial nostalgia story. Uh, And you get this story also from others who, you know, Russia is trying to restore its imperial greatness either under the Soviet Union or under old imperial Russia. Dominic Levin's argument is a little bit more sophisticated, I think, which is that uh, Putin and and the elite in Russia, which he really sees as being largely the old sort of security military elite of the Soviet Union, is seeking to restore its status as an elite and a country that really matters in the world. And it's this yearning for power status and projected influence into the world order that is behind the the strategic choices of uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And then the third sort of big story is... I guess what I'd describe is Ukraine as a little America, that in a way Ukraine is a replay of the story of natural freedom, uh, natural democracy and rebellion against an imperial power that America itself played out, that Ukraine is this nursery of freedom all the way back to Kiev and whenever 1000 AD and, you know, sustained through the Cossacks and all the rest of it, and now coming out finally where Ukraine is breaking free from the despotic influences of the East that uh, is coming through. And this is an argument that is is put, I think, by, like, Timothy Snyder in more or less sophisticated terms. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it in sort of metaphorical terms, but... Uh, it's put by Timothy Snyder and it was also put by Francis Fukuyama and you can tell from that the 
the role of this story, I guess, in the sort of American political security establishment, Francis Fukuyama being very much a representative of that viewpoint. And he essentially sees the conflict between Ukraine and Russia as a way of rekindling liberalism and democracy in the West, that the Ukrainians are courageously battling for the very values that uh, America once held dear and that by going down in a blaze of glory that they can help save the West and save liberalism. Indeed, he says in an interview in Unheard that Vladimir Putin is at the centre of a global anti-liberal campaign waged by authoritarian great powers like Russia and China. Not mentioning, of course, the world's greatest democracy, India, but also by a large, by a number of populists that have arisen in uh, democratic countries like Viktor Orban in Hungary or our Donald Trump. Again, not mentioning uh, Narendra Modi in India. Putin said very explicitly that he thought liberalism was an obsolete doctrine, and a lot of conservatives in the United States have actually said they like Putin, they like the idea of a strong man that could cut through all the liberal nonsense they saw going on in their societies. With this invasion of another democratic country, Putin has created a certain amount of moral clarity. The biggest advantage of a liberal state is the fact that it's not authoritarian, it's not a dictatorship, it doesn't kill people, it doesn't invade neighbours. Putin's demonstrated what the alternative to liberalism is. Indeed, uh, in earlier in March, Fukuyama made uh, 12 predictions about the uh, war in Ukraine, saying that Russia is heading for a total defeat in Ukraine, so he seems to have that wrong. The collapse of the position could be sudden and catastrophic. Mm. There's no diplomatic solution to a war before this happens. Mm. The UN Security Council has once again proved its futility. So deep is the uh, commitment of the US to the international order. He supports the decisions not to declare a no-fly zone. The cost that Ukraine is paying is enormous. Putin will not survive the defeat of his army. The invasion has already done enormous damage to populists around the world. Uh, maybe. And the war up to this point has been a good lesson for China. Mm. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that maybe not the way he predicted. Um, and then let us hope that Taiwan itself will awaken to the need to prepare for the fight. Uh, Turkish drones will become bestsellers. I think most of them have been destroyed. And a Russian defeat this is really the story about the historical argument. A Russian defeat will make possible a new birth of freedom and will bring us out of our mess over the decaying state of world democracy. The spirit of 1989 will live on thanks to a handful of brave Ukrainians. So there's a sort of a historical, mythical uh, storyline that is emerging out of all this, um, which uh, is very powerful and is, is dominant in the media. And partly because of that uh, 
if it, that's part of the reason why I think I'm going to take my sort of geopolitical type discussions uh, onto a new channel uh, off the Burning Archive podcast. The Burning Archive will continue to focus on history and culture. And uh, I think I'll take the discussion around uh, geopolitics to the Burning Archive on Locals. Uh, and I'll give you more details of of all of that uh, shortly in another in the next podcast, uh, or in a, in a week or two once I've got it all set up. But um, so that's me signing out for now on the Ukraine crisis. I hope you have enjoyed my seven episodes. Indeed, it is seven episodes now on the Ukraine uh, crisis, which have been my special episode back on February 27th, Geopolitics Upside Down, War in Ukraine on March 3, uh, Geopolitics Ukraine Crisis Diplomatic Chessboard on March 7th, US Biolabs Exposed in Ukraine Crisis March 9, The Wars of the Anglo-American Succession Reframing the Ukraine Conflict on March 12th, Ukraine conflict, who miscalculated most, Russia or USA, on March 18, and this episode. Okay, for now then, do take care, proceed carefully in this world of, of conflicts between empires, decaying empires and failing elites, um, and keep yourself safe. Uh, I know I will, and... Do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.